Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. That pause there was where you would have heard, and I'm Peter Constantian, but you're not going to hear that today. In fact, today Peter had to be out of town, and so I am bringing you a big steaming pile of Court Green. I don't know if you want that. I'd find it boring, but I encourage you to listen right along. We didn't get get to do a show last week, and therefore... And we don't want you to have that two-week drought. So I asked Peter if he minded if I went ahead and did one without him. And he said that was fine with him. In fact, encouraged me to do so. Careful what you wish for, Mr. Constantian, my friend. Because, I don't know, I'm lonely without Peter. He's, he's a right-hand man. So here's one of the things that that entails. So I'm going to try my best to keep the show kind of what we're used to. I'm going to follow along with one of the lectionary texts. We're going to break it down as much as we can, and I'll try to keep it as fun as possible. But I'm used to the banter, right? So I am used to talking to Peter. He asks great questions, and I do my best to answer them in my own unique court green way, which is the only way I can answer anything, just like you guys have your own unique styles to everything that you do. I'm going to try not to talk too fast, but I'm in a room by myself, so I don't have anyone to remind me to slow down. I am also going to try my best to keep it interesting, but I am just, you know, one human being and it is what it is. I think it's going to be all right. I hope we have some fun together, even if we're not really together today. Uh, One other note before I jump in. Uh, Not only is Peter gone, but the church secretary at Canton First Baptist is gone right now. She had to have a medical procedure, and it was scheduled. We knew she was going to be gone. And so that said, if the phone rings, then I'll try to edit all those moments out. But if I miss and one comes in here then and, and interrupts the broadcast and it makes it to the recording, then I'm sorry about that. All right, so I suppose the best way to do this would be to jump into the lectionary but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to pose a question to you, the listening audience. When you think about Solomon, what comes to mind? Now, when I say Solomon, I mean Solomon the king. But when we think about the biblical King Solomon, what usually comes to mind in the life of the average churchgoer? Are you thinking... I'll give you a moment to think a little bit longer. For most of us, that's one of two things. For some, it's women. Solomon gets famous for having all these women around him. I don't know how many of them were actual relationships, how many of them were political. Oftentimes, as sad as this is, it still goes on to some degrees in some cultures, but as sad as it is, there are often women who were essentially reduced to commodities and were given and traded, as many commodities are, to seal the deals on certain political contracts and things like that. So I don't know how many of them are actual relationships. In our modern Western society, we'd think, well, anything more than one would be too many, but that is not the world in which they lived. For some of us, we think about women. But remember, the actual question wasn't about women. That was me going off on a tangent. But the original question was, what do we think of when we think of Solomon? For those of us who don't think about 
the women, many people, I would venture to guess most, would think one word, wisdom. There's probably a, a faction of people out there that would think this is temple, Solomon's temple. But I think most of us would probably think wisdom. And there's a reason for that. Because when we're kids, we learn about this one snapshot in the life of Solomon. And it's not actually given to us in terms of the life of Solomon. It's almost given to us as an introduction to the king version of Solomon. Where God says, this is the version we're used to. God says, hey, what do you want? Ask anything. And Solomon says, wisdom. And that's, for most of us, the, the lasting image that we have of Solomon. That snapshot right there. I mean, there, there's certain things that we just associate with people, right? We associate being short and having his hand in his jacket with Napoleon. Why? Because someone painted him that way. Napoleon wasn't that short for his time, and he didn't always leave his hand in his jacket. That was just a, a picture that someone painted, and it's, it stuck with us. So we have this snapshot in our minds of Solomon, and we're going to look at that snapshot today. But I do want to preface this before we go into the snapshot itself. I want to talk about the fact that Solomon's entire existence cannot be reduced to just that. Like I said earlier, there were the women, but there's so much more to him than that. He was a very deep character, and in Kings in the Bible, that's not usually the case, at least not as they're presented to us. But Solomon was a very deep character. He he emoted a lot. He, he, he shared his feelings much more than other kings that the Bible gives to us. We get to see some of his inner workings, and he was really, really busy, by which I mean he built things. Some of those things, if you read the Bible closely, it seems like not such a great idea. And throughout his kingdom, he almost seemed to have this, this yearning for a lasting greatness that would outlive him, which is natural. I think many of us want that. I want that in some ways. But it seemed to take him to places that were destructive because be careful what you wish for. Those who wish for power over others have to also realize that when they exercise their when they exercise that power, when they exist as a person with power over others, everything they do affects more than just them. And so as Solomon, as he grows older and he tries to start building things and, and amassing things, and I don't just mean personal riches. He was doing things that were technically good for the quote-unquote nation, which at this point it was a nation like we think of nations. But he was doing things that were technically great for the nation, and yet... Because when you are in power over people, your actions affect them. All this stuff that he did, the consequences of doing it, led to him being the last king that they would have over a unified nation. Because after him, it split. Well, he was already dead. He didn't see any of this. But after his rule came to an end and the next king inherits power, 
the northern kingdom splits off and you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the northern and the southern kingdom of Judah and they didn't always get along they they kind of worked some things out but they had a few skirmishes and so can we really say that he was that wise that brings up another question is anyone truly always any specific character trait we might associate certain character traits with certain people but does that encompass all of them and i think because of the depth of humanity because of the infinitely creative nature of our creator who has created us to be so deep and to have such complex and layered beings no we're not able to be summed up in one character trait so we need to be careful when we think about this you know calling solomon that wise king because he may have been but that doesn't mean he was always the way we know him i think about the movie shrek and how when shrek and donkey are walking through i don't know some kind of wheat or corn or whatever plant that was they're going through this crop field and as they're doing so shrek is trying to tell him that an ogre is much more than just an ogre it's just not just some fiend and you can sum up an ogre by the word ogre but instead ogres are like onions and donkey just doesn't seem to get it and finally he comes out and says layers onions have layers ogres have layers donkey still doesn't get it but we the viewer do and humanity is like that we have layers that was the essential truth that the movie was trying to show us that we're more than what we look like and we're more than what we are often categorized as but as i was watch as i was thinking about solomon i kept thinking about shrek because it's it's so tempting to say oh solomon he was a king and he was wise and that's solomon and thinking then you think you know the guy as our discussion a couple weeks ago about david should show you you can't do that with biblical characters and even though we're in the old testament today i i've talked for 10 minutes before we even got where we're supposed to go but i'm going to say this anyway even though we're in the old testament today i want to add jesus to the mix we think jesus oh savior okay fine wasn't he more than that wasn't he also a prophet wasn't he also a community organizer wasn't he also fighting for justice wasn't he also a teacher wasn't he so much more than just the role of a savior he may have played that role and he truly was a savior but wasn't he more than that wasn't he a brother wasn't he a son you could get all dan brown and say was he a father and i can't answer that question because i wasn't there but we're not going to go down that road today because not because i don't think it's interesting well that's true i don't think it's interesting so yeah because i don't think it's interesting all right so having said all that it may be time to finally turn our our attention to the verses that we're going to read today i'm not going to read the whole thing because a lot of it i'll get bored just reading it okay but if you want to read the whole thing it's first kings 2 10 through 12 and then 3 through 14. i am going to pick it up at 3 6. i think i said that wrong it's first kings 2 10 through 12 
then 3, 3 through 14. That makes more sense. I am going to start reading at verse, actually, 7. God comes up to this. This is not me reading. This is me summarizing. God shows up in some way to Solomon, points out, okay, you're new here. You don't know much about the job. What do you need from me? It seems like God is not trying to just give a free, you know, goodies to Solomon, but is instead trying to help him be better at the job that he now has, which is amazing because God didn't want there to be kings anyway. And we're in the third version of Kings of Israel, and it seems like God's still not much of a fan. That being said, God cares about Israel and doesn't want them led by morons and therefore is offering to help and asks Solomon, what do you need? What can I do to help you do this job? I want you to pay attention, not just to what the request was, but how Solomon makes the request. I'm actually going to start in verse 6. So 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 6. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. At the end of verse 6, Solomon is talking about himself. He continues, 3-7. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant, this is verse 8, and your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Verse 9, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil, for who can govern this, your great people? Verse 10, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, the verses go on, but I'm not going to read them right now. I may come back to them, but I do want to talk about not, again, not what the ask was. And in this version, it didn't say wisdom. Some translations do say wisdom. This version, he, he asks for a discerning mind and gets more specific to tell what's good and what's bad, things like that. That is a part of wisdom, but I don't think that we do it justice when we just say the word wisdom. So I, I like the way the NRSV translates this. I'm not saying that you should have the same kind of Bible that I do. I'm just saying that I like the way it's translated here. So that said, in a way, he does ask for wisdom. And again, we're not here to talk about the ask so much as we talk about the stuff that surrounds it. First, God asks, what should I give you? Solomon goes into this, this kind of history lesson about his dad. And if you'll notice, he remembers his dad differently than the rest of the Bible remembers him. And that's fine. We tend to do that. We tend to romanticize, see the past through rose-colored glasses, create a past that didn't exist. And that's kind of natural. Having said all of that, when he gets to himself, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. That's great. I've already got the title. I'm the king. But then he follows it up with this. I am only a little child. I don't know exactly how old he was at the time. 
he probably wasn't a little child little child a lot has happened since he was born and he was he was born out of the union of david and bathsheba and then since then others of his children have had a civil war and so we know some time has passed solomon is probably an adult so why would he say that i am only a little child i don't think he's trying to lie to god who you got to assume god knows how old he is instead i think that he is suddenly coming into this position and for the first time it dawns on him i might not be ready and many of us have stood where he stands in that moment. The temptation is not to admit it. The temptation is to do everything that we can to hide it and to fake it until we make it. And to just hope that on the road to, you know, before anybody can notice, while we're in the midst of trying to, to quote unquote get it, we actually do get it. So we, we fake it till we make it. We we hide the fact that we may not be qualified to be there. We battle with our imposter syndrome and hopefully along the way we'll figure it out. What I love about Solomon here is he doesn't do that. He's honest. He says, I'm only a little child in comparison to the job I have to do. I know nothing about the role that I'm expected to accomplish here. It's kind of like sitting down to do a podcast and you don't have your co-host and then what you do. So I love the way that Solomon is open and honest before God here. Maybe we should try it. Because far too often, and I'm really just speaking for Baptists here, but I probably am not, but in my mind, like to my knowledge, I'm just speaking out of a Baptist context. Far too often, we want to be the guys or gals with the answers. We want for no one to be able to see any weakness in us. We want for people to assume that we have all of the knowledge, that we have the answers, that we cannot be wrong, because after all, we know all the stuff, and if you disagree with us, you must be wrong. And that's just not true. And only when we admit to that... When we own the fact that we don't have all the answers, only then can we learn. Only then can we grow. Only then can we truly become at least closer to wise. And it seems that even at this young stage, I won't say age because I don't know how old he was, but even at this young stage in his royal career, Solomon is wise enough to know that Solomon is unwise. And the beauty of that is that it, it puts someone, who will admit this, it puts someone on the path to attaining more wisdom. And when we assume that we have all the answers, a problem that is just horrifically present in the clergy lifestyle, when we when we assume that we have all the answers, we can't grow. I don't remember where I was going to that when I started that tirade, but now I'm going to come back to the Bible. Solomon comes out of the gate admitting that he doesn't have all the answers. He even goes further to say, I do not know how to go out or to come in. In other words, the task I'm facing is more than I can handle on my own. So we already have the admission that he's not as wise as he should be. 
He's not as wise as the task calls for him to be. But in addition to that, he doesn't know how to do the job. It's not just the character trait of wisdom that he feels lacking in that moment. It's the actual rubber-meets-the-road practical knowledge of how to do the job. What I find beautiful about this is the fact that in that knowledge and in that admission, we, in our modern American context, not all of our listeners are in America, but in in our modern westernized context, we assume that if one admits that I don't know everything, I'm not that wise, if I, if I don't know how to do the job, then I am obviously not fit for the job. Therefore, I should be fired. Now, I am not, in case you're a listener from my church, I am not advocating for the firing of your pastor. But we assume that. But what did the Lord do after this admission? We haven't even finished the admission yet. We're going to go through that before we see the final result. But God doesn't fire him. God doesn't say, uh, I guess you're right. I guess I was wrong to choose you for it. Go, you know, go back to the fields or whatever. That's not what happens. And there's hope for all of us in that. Number one, it offers us hope that God may use us for things that we are not capable of doing. If you see earlier in the Bible, and well, later too, a pattern develops that God does in fact specifically choose to use people that cannot do the job that God calls them to do. There's a reason for that. It's because God wants to show the world that it's God doing it and not them. So that's the first thing. God God uses people who can't instead of using the people who can But the second thing, along with that, I believe we were talking about um, what we learn from God calling Solomon, even though he was unable to do the the job. If God will call him, then God can call us. If through him, God can do great things, then God can do great things through us. It's not because we're better than him. It's because we have the same God. And that same God's still working. And these are wonderful things to learn. But we have to overcome our temptation to be seen as the one with all of the answers. We, and I do mean people like myself, and myself included in that, we as clergy have to be able to admit in front of those who, I don't want to be this crude about it, but I will, pay us to have the answers, that we don't have all the answers. That is hard to do. Many times I've I've not intentionally done this, but when when hit with a question out of the blue and kind of put on the spot, I'll hem and haw and try to just keep talking until I find something like an answer. That's not the way to do it. And there's someone in my office, so I have to go for just a second. So that's taken care of and I'm back. But I will often... Just try to fill the silence until my mind can come up with an answer that'll suffice when it would be so much easier and so much more honest. And I've tried to get away from this. I haven't done this for a while. But it it would be so much more honest just to say, I don't know. Let's look for an answer together. And with that, it's the admission that there might not be an answer. 
Or if there is, I might not be able to find it. And perhaps we might just have to allow for mystery. So since somebody came into my office, I didn't really remember where I was going with that. So I am going to move to the next verses. And they are kind of right along with the verses we were just talking about. So he admits that in comparison to the job he has to do, he is childlike. Then he talks about he doesn't even know how to go in and come out. And he, he I, I don't know the steps and I don't know the, the, the processes. I don't know how to do this job, God. Verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen. A great people, so numerous, they cannot be numbered or counted. So we've established that he's un. un Experience, inexperienced compared to the job. Then he talks about how he doesn't know how to do the practical things of the job. And then his next move is to talk about the importance of the job. In other words, it's too big because I might mess it up. God, if I have to do this, knowing what I know, which is nothing then something so great as the nation you have built may all come crashing down. Now, he didn't realize that it was going to one generation after him, but think about the honesty of that statement. But also, while you're thinking about it, realize that he does indeed become king. He does hold the position for the natural span of that position, which is his lifetime. Which means that even in admitting that the job is too big, God doesn't say, oh, well, then clearly you're not fit. I'll find someone else. This is one of the hardest lessons to learn, not in ministry, but in life. Because if we're believers, life should be ministry, right? It should be the same thing. But this is one of the hardest lessons to learn because we look at monumental needs and we get intimidated. And Solomon's intimidated right now. We look at these monumental needs and they intimidate us. And we think, I'll bow out and God will give me something more manageable. But it seems here, at least as I break down this verse in Kings, it seems to me that God doesn't always operate like that. It seems to me that God essentially takes this honest admission and says, that's true, it is too big for you, but you're the guy I want doing it. And we see that in God's answer. So Solomon comes out and get and asks, he makes the ask for understanding. This is what the response is. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Our assumption, our fear, I should say, is that it's going to make God angry if we admit that we don't have the answers like God doesn't know that. Another, another assumption that we have that's a toxic assumption is that if we see the task as too daunting, intimidating, it's just too big for me to handle, and we admit that to God, as if somehow we had God fooled into thinking that we were capable. But if we were honest about 
are in, are are being intimidated, then God might just think that we are failures, and that our stock would go down in the eyes of our Creator. We don't want that. I wouldn't want that. But that's not what happens here. Nothing like that happens here. In fact, it pleased the Lord. What pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this? I don't think it's the ask itself that pleases God, although I'm sure God was pleased that it wasn't like, give me money or something like that. I think what pleased the God, what pleased the God, come on now, Courtney, what pleased God was the fact that Solomon has admitted I can't do this on my own. So I need discernment. The task is too big. So I need understanding. What would Christianity look like today if believers everywhere were were willing to admit that we don't have the answers? One side of that, as I envision it, is a little bit disheartening. Because far too often, at least in the southeastern United States where I live, far too often people go to churches looking for easy answers. They don't want depth. They don't want to leave thinking. They want to leave having been told that what they already believed was right. In many ways, we use that idea, or at least that mindset, and instead of offering the biblical truths, we take the mindset that already exists and shape the the Bible to fit it. That's wrong. It can get you a big church, but it's wrong. And so, perhaps... I don't want to talk myself out of a job here, but perhaps if we have this attitude that Samuel, or I'm sorry, that Solomon displays here, we may be looking at churches with less numbers in the pews. But if you have people in those pews who realize that they can be honest before God, if you have people in those pews who own the fact that they don't have all the answers and are willing to be challenged by what the Bible offers them, if we have people in those pews who know that they themselves cannot save the world just because of their own greatness, then aren't we looking at a church that's ready to hit the ground running led by God and not themselves? Aren't we then looking at a church who is really ready to change this world? Folks, if we would all adopt this attitude, this mindset, if all the Christians in the world thought like this, I can't do it on my own, but you can through me. I'm not up to the task, but you are. And I'll do what you want me to do. If we had that mindset, you are not looking at a mere church anymore. You are certainly not looking at the established church that we're used to in America. Instead, you are looking at a revolutionary force for the God who created our universe. That's an amazing thing, folks. I've gone on for a while about this, and the more I think of it, the more exciting I, excited I get. 
but it's been 32 minutes and I don't want to talk for too long because it, it's just it's just weird for me being the only guy talking but I get excited about the possibility of a church that's awake and what this shows us is that the first step in coming alive is to admit that we don't have the answers, but we're willing to learn. To admit that the problems are great, they're overwhelming, and no, we can't fix them ourselves. But we serve a God who can, and we're willing to be used. In a church like that, if it doesn't get you excited, then... Maybe there's no future at all. But I refuse to believe that. Because I believe we serve a God who doesn't just want to be content with creating a wonderful world and seeing that it's still around for a while. I think we serve a God who wants things to be as they were created to be. Good. Isn't that what God proclaimed? And I believe that if we would adopt this attitude that Solomon has, at least here, like I said earlier, there's a rest of the story too. But if we adopt this, this attitude that he displays here, folks, we're looking at a different future. We're looking at a future not built by us, not built by our systems of worship, not built by our understandings of how a church can function based on nothing but the way it has functioned. And instead, we're looking at a future built by God. And that's exciting. For Pastor Potluck, I'm Court Green. That silence was Peter Constantian. Miss you, buddy. I can't wait to do this again with you either next week or the week after or whenever we get back together. Take care. Peace.